right? This is this is newly redone, nicely done. They have a hard time keeping signs in any of these sites because the uh, not just Bedouin but others uh, as well come and steal them. They sell them for scrap metal, um, so they take them down and put them up. This is a minor miracle that it's still here. Um, so this is Yerushalayim miracle. This road is a major part of this drama here. I started making the case, started making with a punchline that, uh, oh, this is great. You get to look at the map and avoid the princess. It's like a double, double advantage. Um, so um, they will assert, I think quite reasonably, this is the most important battle site of the War of Independence. And since we're coming on down the line for all the Zionist holidays, uh, tonight is the beginning of what they call um, Yom HaShoah, or they don't call it Yom HaShoah. They call it um, Yom HaZikaron L'Shoah Uligvura, the oddest name on the planet. The, which but is another discussion, but the Memorial Day for um, Holocaust or Shoah, which is honestly the same thing as Holocaust, and um, heroism. That makes sense? You think that's the first word that comes to your mind when you think about the Holocaust? Heroes! I mean, there were, but it's not the first thing. There are a lot of adjectives you could use. What, say it again? Mr. Nefesh. Mr. Nefesh. For mitzvahs, there was some of that too, in short order maybe, but there was some here and there. Yeah. Anyway, that's tonight. And that's, that actually, why do I call that a Zionist holiday? Uh, I'm, by the way, being, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to, this is uh, me uh, unloading and, and no, no filters. Uh, Right. Okay. So. (laughs) Unfiltered. um, Unfiltered Blyweiss. So why is it a Zionist holiday, the Holocaust today? Holocaust day? Which is a very problematic day. Because it, it, it led to the creation. Well, that's the narrative. In other words, that's not unreasonably. If I were a diplomat, if I were Israeli diplomat and I want to try to pull, you know, promote my bill of goods and sell the world on the legitimacy of the state of Israel, I would also give a big emphasis to the Holocaust because it makes that, you know, it makes that point that before the, the before the, um, you know, the phoenix rises from the ashes before the, uh, the creation of the state. So the Jews were branded for destruction. And, uh, and, and therefore, that's the existential purpose of the state, is, to, is that, and there's no alternative to it. Look, look what happened without, uh, goes the argument. Not unreasonable. I mean, that was the reason that was, uh, Herzl, goes back to Herzl covering, if this is familiar, yeah, this is, you know this stuff, this is basic Zionist history. Um, Herzl covering the Dreyfus trial in France in the 1890s also came to that conclusion. If, if, if Dreyfus, Alfred Dreyfus, who was a career officer in the French, a totally assimilated Jew like most French Jews in those days, um, if he, as a career military man, would be branded a traitor to the country and something that was obviously set up and framed and he was totally innocent and everybody knew it, um, and that could happen in the, in the country of France, what did France symbolize in the modern world? Um, change. Um, I guess they're light to them. Yeah, they're the beginning. Napoleon Bonaparte's revolution, right? He decapitated Marie Antoinette. And um, the revolution in France was the beginning in many ways of political um, liberalism. Liberté, égalité, fraternité was the motto, right? And so they were all about equal equality. It was Napoleon who, who uh, started the great Sanhedrin. He wanted to somehow... Um, uh, incorporate the Jews, and if this could happen in France, then Jews are not safe anywhere. Anywhere, so that's 
a tangent within a tangent. We'll get back on track. But um, that's the beginning of, and why is it today? That's another bizarre reality. Uh, well, we could talk about that another time. But anyway, tonight and, to, and, 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 um, and going into tomorrow, there will be ho- Holocaust memorials. There's sirens that go off. They stand for a couple minutes of silence. That's problematic, although I wouldn't want to be around. I personally just avoid being in public centers because I don't want to make a stink. Um, but if I have to be out inside or something, I wouldn't go against their norm because I don't want to make a ruckus. Well, the Haredim um, run into the bathrooms. Right, or something <laughs> like that. Not really all of them. A lot of them revel in not standing. Mm-hmm. You know, but Dafka, and then they get covered in the news. I'm not kidding you. It's a major news story every year when the Haredim are not standing for the sirens that go off both um, tonight and tomorrow and also next week they'll have what they have a more legitimate name, Yom Zikaron. They have Memorial Day for the fallen soldiers and terror victims followed by Yom Atzmud Independence Day. So these days, that's why, I don't know if you noticed, their flags up all over the place. This is the time that the nationalists uh, in Israel get all, get, get all excited. And this, these are their days. And they um, put it almost like, you know, if they, especially the secular, they get rid of the Torah and they get rid of the proper holidays. So these are, this is their holiday season. And they'll actually wish each other in Yom Atzmur, Chag Sameach, as a substitute for the real thing. That's, uh, that's, that's the way. Which you can hear is all loaded with hashkafa. All right. Um, Will we be saying hello? We'll say We'll be saying tachanun. <laughs> yeah. These are loaded ideas, and most of us have talked about them. Shlomo, you haven't, you haven't heard me on these subjects. I think everybody else here has heard me too much on the, on the subject. But um, if you're a good American, you're a Zionist. Like, and, and you just think of that as, like, you know, if you're a good American Jew, of course you identify with Zionism. It's the Israeli state. It's a Jewish state. No? as people think, right? And if you're not, if you're anti-Zionist, that means you're either on the far fringe right, that means you're in a Turi Karta, right? Marching in, in, you know, marching with the Ayatollahs in, in Iran, uh, or you're on the extreme left with a Palestinian cause, uh, right? The idea that somehow, okay, there's the, there, there are issues with the secular state doesn't often occur to American Jews. But, Mamish, I know. It's, it, it's like music in the background as we're talking about these themes. <laughs> they are, they are, because they do all their stunts. Yeah, I mean, it's fun, it's fun. It's, you know, they have fireworks, they like to imitate the Goyim. Um, okay, so I have to make the case now, and I, I, I think it's a great story. I, I, you, you might have heard it in the history. Do you know the story of the Castell? Castell, they call it. Okay, fine. So it is... There's a reason why they see it as the pivotal story of the War of Independence. It's, it's War of Independence. It has to do with this map. This map is um, of the Judean Hills area we're going to be focused today, going to Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim is over there. And um, on a broader map, which we'll, which we'll look at shortly, you'll see that Yerushalayim, in the dark days of the late 40s, was a Jewish bubble surrounded by hostile Arabs in every single direction except for the west. We're west of Yushalayim. If you continue along this road, you know this, if you continue along this main road, you'll get to Tel Aviv, making this road the lifeline to Jerusalem in those days. Because you couldn't really access Yushalayim north, south, or east. All of those led to what they, they call the West Bank. North is Shomrom, south is Yehuda, east is today's Jordan. Uh, and other things and um, this became people realized early on in the fighting this became the linchpin this became the centerpiece of everything and um, why was this so important why was Yerushalayim so important you tell me you, it's symbolic of Eretz as well yeah yeah for whom Jews and Arabs everybody everybody 
I mean, it's the jewel in the crown. You don't have Yushalayim, you don't have anything. And you know this about war, war is all psychological. I mean, it helps to have a good military. Um, but, um, but you could have a superior military and still lose the war, you're aware of that? Anybody study war? We've talked about wars today, right? You could have a better military, but if you've psyched out the populace, if the people feel like, oh, we're not gonna, war is usually declared a victory by the side who said we won, not necessarily that they did. And uh, the other guy simply said, we lost, not necessarily that they did. And in psych- psychological terms, if you got Yerushalayim, you got, you got everything. If you, didn't, you don't got Yerushalayim, you got nothing. And everybody realized that was true. Um, do you want to go? We could sit more. Oh, well, and this is, this is the site we're going to go to. You can see it's a mountain. It, it kind of is, it's hard to realize that when you've got all this nice lush uh, foliage. You have the trees all around. The trees, you know, are all new. There were no trees in Eretz Israel when the Zionists first came. It's the only country in the world. Remember the statistic? Only country in the world in which the 20th century ended with more trees than it began with. Every place else is deforesting and, and they're planting trees, but then it obscures the reality of the grounds where you don't always realize. This is a mountain. It's the highest peak outside of, um, outside of the Yushalayim area. What's important about mountains in terms of military strategy? What strategy? High ground, you have high ground, you get everything. And you get the roads below. Because you sit on this, here is the castell. You're sitting on the high ground, controlling this road. You can see it, we'll see from the top. You're gonna see the whole, you're gonna see Telstone. You're gonna see out to, on a clear day, you can see out towards the uh, coastal plain. And um, you could see specifically the road below. Now the road below was not a three lane highway that runs in three lanes in each direction. Rather, it was a rinkety old holdover from the Ottoman, corrupt Ottoman regime, barely paved. Uh, it was windy. It was not the same route exactly as what we take today. The new piece of the road that we're get, you're going to be on after we leave here, if you could picture this, when it gets when it goes, it, you're on, we're on the peak, yeah. So you're going to go down in the valley, and then it goes up once, and then you get a Telstone. You take a weird route when you came for the Shabbaton, but usually there's a main there's a main highway. That main highway, there's a whole addition that was added, uh, is post Six Day War, post '67. Before the Six Day War, they had to travel through Abu Ghosh. The Chidah, writing and traveling in Eretz Yisrael in the 1700s, the Chidah, big name, the Chidah writes going through Abu Ghosh that he had to pay an exorbitant road tax to the local Arabs, to the Jabber family, uh, who charged too much because they couldn't. Um, and uh, so this is, this is the old road that was cutting through. Abu Ghosh, you see, Neveh Alan, Telstone was, was not in existence. And um, everybody who sat up here sat up and controlled the main road, which was the lifeline to Jerusalem. And what way was it the lifeline? Why do you need, what do you need roads for? A little softer because I think they we almost hurt you. You're very good. Everything, right? You need, you need. We're talking here. Uh, you need supplies. You need food. You need water. There was, there was no water. There was no water in Jerusalem. As the days went on, they had to ration the water. Uh, you couldn't bathe at one point. Nobody was allowed to bathe because it was, it was a waste of water, precious drinking water. Um, medical supplies, reinforcements, army army divisions, and everything depended on this road. Now, what was on this road? Um, you had not, not many Jews, that's for sure. There was no big uh, suburban, uh, big wealthy... Um, suburb of Yushalayim. My, my parents had a place here. They lived here for, for a few, for several years. Um, there was none of this. 
what existed was a tiny kibbutz surrounded by Arabs called Kirid Anavim, another tiny place called Male Hamisha, way up in the mountain, kind of useless up there. We'll talk about the story later this afternoon about Neve Elan that was newly created in 1946 so that there would be more of a Jewish presence. But that was it. Everywhere else along this way was Arab. Castel was an old, old, big-time Arab village on the top of the mountain. You got um, down in the valley, you got... Um, you got Saris over here, which is not on the map, but Saris, which is today Shoresh. You have Beit Machsir over here, which is Beit Meir today. Arabs, Arabs everywhere. And these Arabs would attack the local caravans that came along this road. And uh, that was intentional to, make, to basically strangle Yerushalayim. It was understood early on in the war that whoever took these roads got Yerushalayim and whoever had Yerushalayim had the war. Hence the general argument why, I think reasonably, if, especially if you, if you read about this in detail, you say, oh yeah, no, no question. Whoever took this place, had command over the roads, had command over Yerushalayim, won the war. Okay, that's, that's a little bit of the background. Are you into, are you into this? Do you want to walk more? I, I didn't realize there are all these groups. I have played a pretty mean game of capture the flag here, but we're too small of a group anyway, and there are too many people up there okay. to probably get away with it. They'll yell at us. Um, <laughs> were you into that? You want to try? Okay, we'll see. We'll see if we have time. Do you want, like, do you want me to talk? Because I have a lot to say. Please. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay, come. Um, maybe some background of war independence. When was it? 48, 49. What was it? Why was there a war of independence? Maybe this is a recording? Yeah. Okay. Um, so they were gunning for a state quite literally um, from the late 1800s. And uh, took some time to get their act together. Uh, the political reality uh, took a while to, to develop. Um, you had the Turks. The Turks were here until? 14. Was it? 1917. 1917 was the end of World War I. Uh, the, you could see right above the central bus station, they have a plaque that commemorates the defeat of Yushalayim at the hands of General Allenby among, of, among the British. Uh, the Turks lost there, they lost in Megiddo, big, big battles, and the British took over until? Well, it was 19... The designated date for withdrawal was May 5th, uh, really, well, May, May 4th, 1948. That was intentional. What was going What was going on with the British Empire? The British were falling apart. Their empire, both abroad and at home, was, it was in terrible shape. Uh, they withdrew at, at one point from India, from many of their holdings that they had. I mean, they lost, I don't know if you know this, in 1776, they lost America, right? But that, that they, were, they were in a state of constant attrition. And uh, so they were withdrawing. They also, why, why were the British here? Christians. Christians. Was it available? They carved the Middle East with the French and they got this land? They did, but why did they want it? I mean, it's true, if you're playing the game of global risk, which is what colonialism was about, you want to conquer everything. Um, so you want as much territory as you can. Why Palestine particularly? For the Suez Canal? Between East Asia and, um, and Africa. So you're, you're both talking about the strategic advantage, you have a connection to, uh, you can go through the Suez Canal, you have a connection with East, with the East and trade, you they also have a, a, the, the British build a pipeline, of oil, an oil pipeline uh, to, the, uh, to the Saudi Peninsula where they could actually, but it really wasn't financial. I mean, finances are helped, that, that was nice, that sweetened, the, uh, that sweetened it, but it, but it was not the key point. Yeah, it was a religious thing. If you win Palestine, you've got the homeland of Yashka. 
if you get the homeland of Yashka, you win the ideological battle for the world. Because each, because what were what are what are British overwhelmingly they represent which denomination of Christians? Anglican Church. Anglican Church, which is a, 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 right, it's high church, low church, but represents the Protestant Reformation, which is at war still on, ideologically with the Catholics. You win that game, you you know, then Jesus loves you more, kind of a thing. Um, so they were here. They got in over their heads. The Arabs and Jews were unruly. They could not rule them, and they quite literally, and they would, they they said, "We're getting out of here." Um, that was clear. Um, we'll see shortly. We'll see the map of the partition. They have it. They have a. It's very helpful to see the partition map. They turned to the United Nations, which was a relatively new entity, um, and they said, "You figure out what to do with this mess. Who's going to have it?" And that that led to the vote for partitioning Palestine. We'll talk about that later. That took place on November 29, 1947. I've mentioned before in other discussions, if you remember this, there's a street in Jerusalem weirdly called Haftes de November. And they don't pronounce it Ashkenazi style like I just did. Haftes de November, the 29th of November. So it's sort of like Jewish and sort of not, because November got in there too, uh, which is a pagan god like most of the months. And um, so that was the, they voted to partition Palestine, what was really expected was that it would be a bloodbath and the Jews had no chance. Demographically, who's here by the spring of 1948? How many Yidden? Guess. 600,000? Good. 600, 650,000 uh, Jews are, uh, are, are in Palestine. And locally, how many Arabs? 1.2 million. 1.2 million. You read so well. Is that what it is to say that? <laughs> yeah, oh, okay, good. Okay, at least get like fact checking. Yeah, 1.2 million Arabs are local, but there are some 22 Muslim nations that are also on the side of the Arabs, particularly the surrounding, the neighbors, which have it, which under no circumstances will allow a Jewish state. What did they care? Why did they care that the Jews did or didn't have a state? Well, I mean, we're kind of the rivals. I mean, the rivals, right? They don't like Jews. They replaced us. They don't like the Jews. Muslims didn't. They didn't dislike as much as they disliked the Christians. But they don't. They're more to the point. It's another global risk game. Whoever gets Palestine wins the ideological religious war. That means Allah loves you most. And if somehow the Jews are here as an invading force, they don't belong here. So maybe we've lost. The Arabs have lost. If you you can do a lot of things to Arabs, but you can't insult them. You can't undermine their covenant. And uh, that was the presence of the Jews. And the Jews, they would say, there's so much about this, but they would say, what do we want these Jews in Palestine for? What is their, they're a headache for us, and they're not even our problem. Most of them are coming from the Christian West. The Christians created the refugee crisis of the Jews after the Holocaust. What do we have to, why do we have to settle all these, repatriate all these, uh, all these people that the Western world solved their own problems? Was their, was their attitude, and they under no circumstances were going to permit a Jewish state. So you got um, over, uh, not quite double the, the population Jews to Arabs, and Arabs almost twice the size of the Jews locally, and then all around, um, particularly Syria, Jordan, uh, Lebanon, Egypt, and Iraq, with, with, with reinforcements from Sudan, from Saudi Arabia, and others, were, were, fighting, were fighting the Jews. And that's all the backdrop to this, to this struggle, um, I mean, just to give you some of the data, the war was not an easy one. It's usually dated, when was the beginning of the War of Independence? On 29th of November, there was partition. The Jews danced in the streets. Um, the Arabs screamed war. Under no circumstances would they accept partitioning Palestine. Uh, it's entirely a, a, an Arab state in their mind. Uh, we're not, we're not going to permit this. 
Um, and November 30th, the next day, uh, Jewish bus to illustrate the point that I was making before, en route from Netanya coming up to Yerushalayim was attacked, a terrorist attack, um, in which six Jews were murdered. And they date usually November 30th, it's the beginning of the war, that's the beginning of the formal outbreak of hostilities. Um, I mean, wars are subjective, you could date it much earlier, but that was when people counted as the major war. Some argue that the war didn't break out then because the Jews refused to fight aggressively. The mainstream, who, who were the Jews? Who were they, what was, was there an army? Not an army, not officially, not legally. The British had outlawed any such idea. We'll talk about that later this afternoon. But the British outlawed, not only did they outlaw a notion of an army, but um, Jews couldn't make uh, munitions. They couldn't produce bullets. You ever been to Mahonai alone yeah. in Rehovot? Right, they have the underground kibbutz factory that they cleverly, what do they put on top? Bakery. A bakery and? Uh, clean a, uh, a laundry. Why a bakery and a laundry? Made they made a lot of noise, because munition, munition production is very noisy. So you had the noisiest ins, uh, machines on top to sort of obscure the noise that, that's going on down below. But the Jews had to, had, to, had to somehow hide producing munitions. They had to import arms, but that was illegal under the British. Uh, and you couldn't have a fighting force. Those were all illegal. Now, there were fighting forces. They were famously called. What were the fighting forces of the Jews? Lehi. Pamach. Well, Pamach was a division within the Haganah, and the Lehi was also uh, the Lehi was also the Stern game. You also had the Irgun, otherwise known as the Etzel. Um, do you know about these? Is this interesting? This stuff is interesting. Uh, if you were an, an Israeli right now, you'd be you'd be getting really low marks on your yeah. scores in Zionist history, which is fine. But they know the stuff. They and in, in, when you, to get one of these doohickeys, like you, you had to go about all this stuff endlessly. They, you know, there's way too much, too many details. They, in the tour guide curriculum, go to battle site after battle site after battle site. You have to know the names of the generals and the people who fell in each battle. And they know it. It's scary how long like, you go around. You'll, you'll get some of these groups. They're going into like hardcore detail about every single struggle. It's I argued before. It's almost like a secular religion to them. That's uh, that's that's how they that's how they they see it. Um, I'm just giving you basics. So what did we ask before? Where am I? We're all over the place. But I, I'm just trying to give you like really. Um, you'll, you'll pardon the expression. Bullet point. Um, you know main main ideas. In, in all of this, um, we were talking about munitions production. Munitions production. So you couldn't have your own. You couldn't have your own. Uh, you couldn't import arms. Um, I was moving on to new point. Loma So the. Um, oh yeah. You couldn't have an about. army. Thank you. Thank you. That's what we're talking about. Yeah, the different fighting groups. So the Haganah was a was a new name for the original fighting force that the Jews founded called the first was called Hashomer, that they reorganized called Bargiora, later on renamed as the Haganah. That was the mainstream party. That was the mainstream um, that became the political party of the labor that won almost all the elections into the Likud revolution in the in, in 1977. Um, labor which I just uh, I, I saw a poll just now that says that labor if they were to elect a new government tomorrow would not even pass the threshold labor was uh, under golden mayor they got like 60 seats half the knesset were labor rights I, I, maybe almost almost half now maybe 50 57 or something like that in its heyday and um labor was the center left major dominant party who were the representatives who were the major figures of the labor movement and the haganah Moshe Dayan. sure 
Moshe Dayan, even before him, Ben-Gurian. bigger, bigger name. Ben Gurion, Golda Meir. Where's the mainstream? Maybe Eshkol, Eshkol Street, Ramad Eshkol, right, right in our backyard. They were all, they were all Leverites. Um, then you had because they were the Leverites. This is a big piece. The Haganah was nervous because they were trying. They knew that they had to fight a war, but they also felt that they had to have the support of the nations. That without the support of the nations, they didn't have a chance. Um, they were wrong. To learn the history, I don't know how you learn the history without becoming more from. To learn the history, it turns out the nations did nothing to us. They did, they undermined us. Um, there's no reason we should be here logically. It's all it's all pratis. Like if you read, every detail of the war, include especially the story, is Hashem's hand. It doesn't make any sense. But they felt, in their lack of lack of faith, they felt that it was all up to the nations, and they didn't want to alienate the nations. So they exercised a policy, what they still have today, called havlaga. Do you remember that word? I've used it before. Havlaga, it means restraint. Every single time there's a terrorist attack, you hear the, the calls from the American Secretary of State, from whoever, the UN for sure, they'll say, we call on all parties, Israel and the Palestinians, to exercise restraint, which is what, they're, what they were saying to the Jews, was we'd like you to put your hands behind your back and put them in handcuffs and not do anything and allow your enemies to come and attack you. And the Haganah bought it. They felt, okay, we're going to be restrained. We're not going to fight back. So they attacked this terrorist attack from Netanya. Uh, they didn't respond. There were no reprisals. And they kept exercising restraint. Uh, this was an old issue, an old machlokis, to the point that in the 1920s, going back a couple decades, they exercised so much restraint, not wanting to alienate the British and the, the nations, that the right-wingers, today you think of them as Likud, said, what is this? We're getting murdered with our hands tied behind our backs. We have to fight back. That first organization was the Irgun. Uh, the ideological founder was Vladimir Jabotinsky. I'm throwing out names just to connect dots if this means anything. Vladimir Jabotinsky, later on Zev Jabotinsky, uh, David Raziel, and later the biggest name associated with his ideology was, he became a prime minister later on. Moshe Dayan. Not Moshe Dayan. Moshe Dayan was a lefty. He's the one that gave the keys of, uh, of, the, of the Temple Mount to the Waqf, to the Muslim, to the Muslim religious authority. Also Hebron. No, not Moshe Dayan, but Begin, Menachem Begin. Um, do you know that Begin and Ben-Gurion despised each other so much that when they sat in the Knesset for a couple of decades, they didn't talk to each other, they didn't look at each other, and they were represent- they were leaders of opposing factions in the Knesset, and they wouldn't have anything to do with each other. They hated each other so with such uh, uh, vitriol. Um, so the Begin and the and the Etzel broke away, and they're the ones. You ever heard of the um, da- ben, excuse me, the King David Hotel bombing in 1946? That was the Etzel. Menachem Begin was involved with that. It's a complicated story. Um, were they bombing there? Well, they were bombing the British. They thought the British were the enemy. Um, even till today, you talk to some of the right wingers, they'll tell you that the British were more venal than the Nazis, um, which is an exaggeration. To put it mildly, the British were on the Allies' side. They helped defeat the Nazis. So just just to get the record straight, the British were not not our friends. They're anti-Semites overwhelmingly till today, with exceptions. Britain's so weird. Britain has extreme anti-Semitism. Read any major um, journal in England, and it's all anti-Semitic. The BBC, the Guardian, the Economist—it's all anti-Semitic. Um, but then you have this weird philo-Semitism where there are a lot of like passionate Jewish lovers. Uh, they love the Jews, including a woman named, um, what she called, her pet name was George Eliot. She wrote one of the early books that influenced Zionism called Daniel Deronda. Um, you ever heard of Winston Churchill? He was a, he was a decent guy for the Jews. Uh, exaggerate, but he wanted to bomb Auschwitz. They wouldn't let him. 
The British Parliament wouldn't let them. But Churchill was on her side. So you have like the weird combination. Um, but the Pigoon felt that the British were terrible, and you had to, you had to destroy them, and you had to fight for the Jews. Um, when the white paper came out, um, that was in 1936, that did a lot of terrible things, including limited um, limited immigration of Jews. In 1936 to Palestine, you think what that means? Limited immigration of Jews to Palestine, they didn't let Jews in. Jews had no place to go before the Holocaust. Um, and the British, the British were fine with that. Um, so then the Lehi broke away from the Irgun because the Irgun they felt was too moderate. You know, no, nobody, you know, breakaways among breakaways among breakaways. Nobody's doing right. So they had three parties fighting um, for for the state. Um, this is the necessary background and place to talk to all these people. Let's continue up here. Of Chaimer Lazarov means anything. I've told the story before in Shir. Remember the murder of Chaimer Lazarov, which the left used as a political ploy. Uh, to totally trounce the right wing, uh, in that case Jabotinsky, uh, and it was the they used that cynically in order to rise to power, uh, which they did in the next Zionist elections in 1932, 33. Uh, if I if I mentioned the Altalina, the sinking of the Altalina, that was almost yeah. at the uh, 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 a few weeks after this after this battle, these battles in the Castel, the Altalina was sunk. Um, almost a civil war between these fighting forces it was Begin's bravery he said no we're not going to fight we have bigger enemies we can't fight each other and he uh he gave up he surrendered but that didn't mean that he liked ben Gurion, and uh, ben Gurion didn't return any favors this is what the village looked like during the story we're about to tell right it was castell i haven't introduced what's the word castell it's a Roman name for <laughs> a castle. Wikipedia. He's good. He's good. He's good. Oh, no, you got Wikipedia? Yeah, he's like reading the pamphlet. Great. But I, I was trying to not be subtle. Castel means castle. Uh, as it was, it was a Roman fortress that was taken over by the locals. The locals were Arabs. It's an Arab village. It's an Arab village at the top of the mountain that became a hot spot uh, because all of these... Now, who was coming along the Rhones? They were caravans, because people that were afraid to travel alone. They were caravans of Jews that traveled, but they would, the, the classic style was the, the Arabs who knew this territory better than they know, that you, you know the back of your hand, they would go down in this region and they would, um, they would send an old truck in the front burning, so it stopped the caravan. Caravan means a, a series of trucks, bringing supplies, bringing food, bringing, bringing med medical uh, supplies and such, Jewish shalim. They would have a burning truck in the front. When they were stopped, they would send a burning truck in the back, so you couldn't go backwards. And then the villagers would all run down the mountain and throw Molotov cocktails and start shooting. And many times, they, this was a massacre. Right. This is this 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 is the background. This is what things looked like back in the day. Oh, uh, let me answer. Let me answer. So, um, Binyamin asked, um, were the Lehi or the Irgun more religious? Much like today, the Likud tends to attract the right wing. If you, if you have any sense of Israeli politics, tends to attract a more religious or at least traditional uh, base. That makes sense. Yeah. Familiar with that? What would be the connection? And, and you're right to, to note that uh, that that tendency that re religious Jews tend to be more right wing than left wing. Why? Because they emphasize um, more traditional values. Yeah, right, right. The left. It's much more traditional. Um, even though the real right wing were really secular. But they tend to be just like today in the Likud, which is a totally secular party. They have a number of Orthodox members. I think the communications, uh, the communications minister is a religious or grew up religious guy. Um, there's, I mean, the woman Edith Silman, 
who uh, came over. <laughs> it's politics. It's such a messy business. Anybody know any of these things? You follow Israeli politics? Good for you. Australia, <laughs> uh, you're all pure. <laughs> Stay that way. Israelis um, follow politics like like sports. Americans follow sports. Really, <laughs> really, it's like an entertainment. They know, they can tell, you can ask, I bet if you pass kids, I want to test this out, you could ask them about everything going on the Knesset, they'll tell you exactly how many members of the party, they'll tell you every name of every Knesset member. Starting lineup. Right, right, they really, exactly. They know, they, they know it cold. Anyway, there's this woman who's like, semi-religious, she sort of covers her hair, but doesn't really. Uh, one of those, uh, modern orthodox style. Um, and they, um, and she, so she was with the theoretically religious party of Naftali Bennett, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, and then she betrayed them and brought the last government down. She's the reason that the last government came down. And now she sits not only in the, in the Likud, but she has a nice ministerial job. That's how it works. Right? <laughs> very cynical. Very cynical. And, um, yeah, so... Yes, well, point well taken, but mostly secular with, like, a bent towards religious life. Yeah. Do you have that in the, um, do you have the brochure? Yeah. Let me see. Hey, take, this, take a look at this. This is useful. No, 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 no. Maybe they'll have it. They spoke about it, but it's not... Have you ever seen the participants? I, I was counting on it. I have it in my folder that I, I lazily didn't bring today. But, um, you ever see the partition of Palestine? What it looked like? It was terrible. Terrible on all counts for the Jews. It was earned. Oh, you can pull it up? Can somebody pull it up on their machine? Yeah. Yeah, pull up the partition plan. Right partition plan, Palestine partition plan. Um, this was the plan that the Jews went back, bent backwards to get past the United Nations on which date? Uh, November 29, 1947. Oh, okay, somebody out there is listening. Um, okay, 19, 1947 that they voted for. But it was terrible. The Jews were all happy with it. It created non continuous. You have it? Fantastic. Come gather around. Let's go in the shade. So, yeah. You have in front of you. Just one inside. Non continuous borders. The yellow's the good stuff. You don't even perceive this on the map so well. So, oh, it's fair, right? The Jews get the orange. Uh, the Arabs get the yellow. But no. The yellows are all continuous. The Jews get three patches that you have to cross through Arabs' lands to access one to the next. Yeah? That's terrible. Was that done intentionally? Of course. Um, plus, what the Jews got was the worst. The Negev was, 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 um, was not developed. It was not seen as arable. You couldn't have farms there, but you need a farm. You need water You need in order to farm. The Dead Sea is not exactly water, right? The coastal plain, it's true you're, you have access to the Mediterranean, at least that much, but the coastal plain was mostly swamps and sand dunes, also perceived as not arable. Um, and then the, uh, the the finger of the galley, at least you got the canaret there. Sorry, Oops, it's, yeah. a, it's a little finicky when you try to move it around. Yeah, yeah, but... yeah, my problem. Then Yerushalayim was something called a divided city that was not was going to be an international city. What does that mean? Nothing. Wait, Excellent that? answer. Excellent answer, right? Because it means nothing. What, where do we God have a precedent? Wished. There is no such thing as an international city. Why not? It never has been. It never will be because... Oh, it has to be owned by somebody. Why? It has to be controlled by somebody. Because people have a Yitzhahara. You need police. You need you need an army. You need people to say, you're not allowed to steal that old lady's purse and put them in jail. But if you have an international city, who's authorized to do that? Who's sovereign is going to take care of uh, is going to take care of this? So they had no idea what it meant then. Nobody has any idea what it means till today. But there you go. Jerusalem is an international city. This was the plan. It was a disaster on, and, 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 on every front. Um, but the Jews said at least somebody somewhere said we could have a state. We're good with that. Right? We were, they were desperate. And the Arabs said, no, we're getting home. We, even with a favorable 
uh, allocation that they received in the partition plan, they would say, no, this is, no, we're not, this is nonsense. Not our problem. We don't want these Jews. They're out of here. And that was the, uh, that was, and, and, and now what, what, I, what I really, if we're going chronologically, we've set the stage. We have a war, uh, a, a highly unfair war. Um, anybody who says they cover the, the, um, this whole history of the Arab-Israeli conflict um, and they try to be impartial and keep, keep, keep you know, give, be equal, uh, equally fair to both sides is never doing the job. Whoever you listen to, myself included, it is always biased. There is no ever presenting this without, without um, somehow skewing the facts. That's just the way it is. And almost always when people are being even-handed, even-handed journalism, that always means that they're against the Jews. Right, because because it's not even handed. The Jews were very much, and in all the caricatures, and all the and um, all the um, not the caricatures, the um, the political cartoons, um, the Jews up until this point were rendered the David against the Arab Goliath, because that was the perception. And quite frankly, the perception was of um, the Briskarov, the Briskarov, yeah, the Velvola Soloveitchik, right, Brisk Briskolo. Uh, the Briskarov was convinced that, and he makes a very strong argument, that the, the reason why they voted for partition was that everybody in the world was fine with, um, with when the British were going were to withdraw. They knew that the Arabs under no circumstances would accept a Jewish state. They knew it would be a bloodbath, and it was expected, logically, that the Jews would be wiped out, that the Arabs would make good on their claims to throw every last Jew into the Mediterranean. And most of the nations in the world were fine with that. That would have been a final solution to the old Jewish problems, and this way they didn't have to have the headache or the moral qualms of having done it. Said the Briskarov with, uh, with history to back him up on every front. Um, and people don't like to talk about these things. No? People don't talk about these things. Um, so here we are in the Castell, and um, what is the big deal of this place? It's an Arab, sleepy Arab village that wasn't so sleepy during these times because the Jews were trying to get to reinforce Yerushalayim, which we'll see nicely from the top. Um, and the Arabs here were making it increasingly impossible to do so. And, um, and then arose a figure in the Arab world called Abdul Qadr al-Husseini, uh, who is one of the um, one of the main protagonists in this drama that's about to unfold? But let's tell the story in pieces as we go up. What's generally these are generally considered the dates of the War of Independence. The from Jews generally don't like to refer to this war as the War of Independence. I think the Haredi Jews um, don't refer to as War of Independence because it, it, it's it's too much. There's too much bravado and celebratory undertone. Uh, that the that this was the the Jews fought the battle and they did this and they cleared the roads and they finally established a state. Uh, no thanks to Kadosh Baruch Hu. If you hear the traditional secular narrative, traditional secular is such a thing. Yeah, the secular have already founded their own tradition, their own religion. Their narrative. They wrote a Shem out of the picture. That's the story of Yom, of the Independence Day, Yom Atzmaut, where the big event was they read the Constitution that wrote a Shem out of the picture. They debated whether they could put a Shem's name in or out, in and out. It was out. Uh, and that was uh, that was all that happened on that day. Um, so the religious Jews generally call it Milchemet Tashach, the War of Tafshin Cha um, Chet. Right? That was uh, that was that's a more neutral name. Whatever. These are all. I mean, um, we're all kind of into term terminology way too much in the modern world. Uh, I feel your microaggressions triggering me right now. And um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Shoah, Holocaust. These are also debated. I don't care. About this stuff, but it's it's instructive at least to understand why people use different terminology, and um, 
good. You have a more. You have another another perspective about what this road looked like and how precarious it was for the Yidden trying to uh, get you a Shalai Mirror Kodesh. By 49, there was already a state. By, that thank was... you. Thank you. I didn't finish the thought correct. So in 19, the, the big heavy fighting was in the spring of 48, well into the summer. Uh, and by 40, by the fall and winter already things clear, turned decisively on the side of the Jews. Again, all Hashgacha Pratis, it made no sense that it did. Uh, so that by the spring of 49, they were already negotiating armistice agreements with the various Arab entities. Remember Um Rashrash, otherwise known as? In Elat. Uh, Elat, remember the story, they're racing down to hoist the flag up and they forgot the flag, right? <laughs> and remember we told that story in Elat a few months ago. So um, they were scrambling to determine final borders. Was such was perceived as such a major factor that they had a series of operations that they grouped together. There was no official army. This is an underground guerrilla operation, but the Haganah was fighting. Well, let's give one. What I see have a point about this. We were talking about from Ben Gurion's diary. At the moment, there is one burning question, and that is the Battle of the Road for Jerusalem, because of what I argued before. Um, and they named the operation Mifza Nachshon. Who's Nachshon? Nachshon ben Aminadav. Who? Dived into the Amsuf. Well, the, so this was the call to action. Uh, the Jews who still Ben Gurion was once upon a time before he was David Ben Gurion. He was David Green. Grew up in a nice from household, and they knew their Tanakh and they knew basic Judaism more than the secular do today, for sure. And this was a call to arms and to action and be the courageous, be the, be like Nachshon in the modern day. Dive in and take the the, the uh, corridor, the Jerusalem hills, the, the, Judea, the Judean hills, uh, leading to Yerushalayim, and thereby take the war. I mentioned that the policy of Ben-Gurion, the policy of the Haganah, was Havlaga, restraint, restraint, restraint. In April of, um, really in March of 1948, the fighting had gotten bitter and intense. And when I say the fighting, it was mostly Arab attacks against the Jews, with occasional attacks of the uh, Etzel and the, and the Lehi against the Arabs. Um, there were three major attacks that were devastating. There was the attack of um, there was the attack of Neve Daniel in south of Yerushalayim that destroyed uh, a whole military division and a lot of civilians. There was the attack of I'm blocking the name uh, in the far north. Something that was axiomatic, but I haven't done this in some years, so it doesn't come up. I'm learning everything that didn't wasn't my Gemara this morning. Uh, the attack up north somewhere, you know, uh, and um, and the Lamedhe. and these were devastating, and the devastating for morale. And as I said before, most battles are fought. You know, it's all psychological. The Jews had taken a beating, and taken a beating, and taken a beating, and finally the Haganah itself came to the conclusion: we gotta raise arms because the West is not sending in the cavalry. They're not coming in to help us. We have to fight the battle for ourselves. Hence, Mitzad Nachshon, Operation Nachshon, let's go take the Jerusalem corridor. So the decision was made in theory. In practice, it was much more difficult because the Jews were alien to this area, didn't have strongholds, and it's hard to fight. You know, look, Yushalayim was not as huge as it is today. You're looking right now from what we can see, that mountain directly in front of us is called 
Harmenuchos. Harmenuchos. Above Harmenuchos, or actually a little bit uh, out of purview right now is Harnof. And then in the distance, you're already seeing the modern western city, most of which didn't exist back then. The old city is over the hill. Uh, I've called that myself several times. Um, just in the, in the distance. And um, thank you. And um, you, you have your bearings? Kind of make out where you are in your Shalai Miracodish. Remote is the, we'll see, we'll see more clearly, um, is behind that tree. That's Memphis Eretzion. Oh, bells. Yeah, you can see the bells. You can see that they, they not Basin Mikdash, but certainly looks like the Basin Mikdash uh, of bells. Husseini was our, was was the, was the figure. So he's in the middle. That's Abdul Al Khadr Al Husseini. So who was he? He's a guy who grew up in these hills and lived in the villages and knew them uh, as well as people know their phones. And um, he recognized this military and strategic and psychological advantage of these hills, of having these hills. And he raised the battle cry and said, all the Arabs in this area, particularly a place like Castel, have to batten down, have to send reinforcements. And he was supported by, by uh, all the states, by all the local Arabs. And um, he was a charismatic, charismatic figure. And um, the Arabs understood, perceived in him that he was going to be a future leader. Look, look, at, look at his posture, look how he's standing, look how, you know, the, the, the I should say something about the Arabs in, in, in military at this point. The, there were um, armies, actual armies in the surrounding, um, in the surrounding nations, but most of the surrounding nations were relatively new, carved up after World War I. Jordan and Lebanon and were, were new entities. Syria, they didn't really have sophisticated armies, not with modern militia. But what they did have to their advantage was they had particularly British dropouts, um, anti-Semites who went to, who were Arabists, who went into these Arab armies and helped train them for, for, uh, for warfare. Um, the local Arabs didn't have anything like that. They were, talk about ragtag. They weren't trained. They didn't really know what they were doing. But they had one clear common denominator is they were under no circumstances going to allow a Jewish state. Um, so you see what looks like what could be a heroic fighting force that, eh, not so much. What, what he had going for him was his, was, his stat, was his stature in the eyes of the other Arabs, but not much, not much more. Um, yeah, these are the fateful days. One story that, has to, that, I, that I should say, as all this is unfolding, and it's clear that this region is, is heading for some kind of major confrontation, um, the Irgun in this event, with actually... With, with the help of some Lehi members, remember these are the far right wing, they understood that there was another mountaintop that was key, that we'll see from the top, it's just around the corner. We think of it as Harnof, but the top was a place, of a village called? Dir Yassin. Um, you can go there today, the, the remnants of the village have been turned, the old buildings have been turned into a mental hospital, Kfar Shaul Mental Hospital. But in the top of Harnof, in Dir Yassin, that was another such base, another such village that used to attack the Arabs, and on, um, on April 3rd, the Lehi and the Irgun went in in the morning. There were warnings that the Arabs in the village of Dir Yassin knew what was coming. The, well, what happened actually, we'll never really know. Some of you have heard me say this, say this before, but um, something, if you believe the Arabs, what happened was the Irgun with the Lehi moved into Dir Yassin and committed an atrocity of a massacre, came in killing in the hundreds of Arabs wantonly just wanting blood and 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 and, uh, and and gore they raped they pillaged they did every kind of evil uh act 
That's the Arab version of the story. The Jewish version of the story is they went with loudspeakers. We're going to take over because it's a military. It's necessary for the Jews to have this area. You can, you can withdraw now. We won't attack you. Three people fought them and they were killed. I see the miscommunication. There's a little yeah. bit somewhere in between lies the truth somewhere. <laughs> Um, I believe there were more than three, but less than a few hundred, and who knows? Who knows who cares? Because um, what this did, this galvanized the Arabs. The Arabs let out a cry, and they said, with Dir Yassin, Dir Yassin became a cause. Till today, um, the term, remember Dir Yassin, is an Arab rally for, for war against the Jews. Um, because whatever really happened, whatever went down in Dir Yassin, doesn't really matter. It's all about PR. And um, the word went out in the street that the Jews massacred the Arabs and um, the Arabs are coming for reprisals. So that's in the background too. That's another piece of the puzzle. Um, what I think is probably likely is the Arabs grossly exaggerated, but not really in their minds. They heard that the Jews attacked and they imagined a battle and they knew what battles were. They're, they're a bloody violent nation. Back to Mohammed, they've been, they've been violent uh, throughout all of, as long as there's been an Islamic nation. And they probably projected on the Jews what they would themselves have committed if they had attacked a village. And they, we always do that, right? I look, at, I look at you and I assume you're thinking what I think, right? And I project all of my thinking on, your, on you. Uh, and the truth, again, probably lies somewhere in the middle. What did, what did matter, though, was that they got the, the Arabs all in this territory, radicalized, uh, revved up, and ready for some kind of a confrontation. And that led to the battle here, as we read. It led to a lot of things. It led to, remember what happened right near Yeshiva? Right near Osameach? We told the story. Maybe we'll do it on the way out when we go to uh, uh, Shimon Atzadik's kever. But you know there was a massacre the day after Dir Yassin? No, was it? Yeah, it was April 4th. Uh, the day after... I have my days off. Uh, there was a massacre of the Hadassah, uh, Hadassah Hospital car um, caravan. 100 Jews murdered right near Yeshiva. Familiar? Okay, that was reprisals for Dir Yassin. That's how war goes. It goes in vengeance against vengeance against vengeance. So all of this is unfolding. Um, I should say like this too, this is not really our story, but this is a big deal. The Arabs probably exaggerated Dir Yassin. It was everywhere they made. I mean, we would have, today, if it was today, they'd make t-shirts. It would be a meme. You know, it, it, that, that's, I'm, I'm, it, I'm trying to make, you know, give modern equivalents of what it was. And it was on everybody's mind. The Arabs thought that they would use it and it would cleverly rile up the troops. It had the opposite effect. Um, most of the Arabs were terrified. Most, many of the local Arabs were actually living here were pretty comfy. Um, they were compared to the Arabs in Syria and Jordan. They enjoy in Egypt for sure. They enjoy a higher middle class lifestyle. Many of them were loaded, and um, they were not up for a personal. They didn't want to have a battle personally, and so many of them fled. And they just left, and they figured, okay, the big fight. We have so many. We have numbers on our side. We'll have the other people do our fighting. We'll go, we'll, we'll weather the, uh, the, the, the uh, difficulties in Lebanon. We have cousins in Lebanon. We'll go to the Gaza, Gaza area, and, we'll, uh, and when the fighting's over and the Jews are destroyed, we'll come back and reclaim our property. Um, it led to an absolute uh, wave of emigration. Arabs left this area in, in, uh, in, en masse, uh, with a few remaining in the course of the spring. And um, you, we mentioned this because remember when we were driving to the Gush and, I, and we passed the Dehesha refugee camp, I mentioned the refugees. These would become the refugees. They had no place to live, many of them, and so they were put into camps and um, still claim that, they're, that they belong here and they claim the right of return, which is a major, uh, major issue till today because if you were to have a, a, a Palestinian state, if you were to have 
complete democracy here, then you'd have to give the Palestinians the vote, but then it would be a Palestinian state. It's a mess here. They have no real vision about how to fix it up either. Um, the um, current judicial struggle, you're following modern politics, what's going on today, you know that there, there are protests around the country that have been going on for about 15, 15 weeks or so? Yeah. yeah. It's the latest version of the civil war between the Jews, between the right and the left. It doesn't call itself that, but that's really what it is. It's a manifestation of that. Because the right wing perceives the ju judiciary body of the government is left wing, overwhelmingly. And they perceive that there's like a power, uh, an attempt to limit their powers. The judiciary is appointed by usually left wingers. Uh, so they, they, they flex their muscles from a left wing perspective, but the Knesset today is overwhelmingly right wing. And say, so they well, we're the elected people. We're, the, we're we're of the people. So what is the judiciary who's just you know a few a few old um, hacks? Why are they telling you know determining policy in, in the Jewish state? So they're trying to minimize the judiciary policy uh, powers, and of course uh, the powers that be in the army and in, in academia for sure, which is overwhelming left wing. Uh, they don't want that, and that's the uh, that's the current showdown in the government. But it's 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 more of the struggles that we see that are manifest in a place like Castel. Any predictions? Uh, they'll probably come down somewhere in the middle. Hmm. In war trenches, we are. You have to use your imagination, like most places when you tour. This was a village. Um, the outline of the story is there was a major battle. And after the battle, it became a war. It was a battle site. And so it was converted into trenches. And these trenches are held over from the battle. The continuation, the next step of the battle is um, after Duyasin. And after a lot of back and forth, uh, and after the Jews, uh, the, the, there was there was an, a, there was a, a Jewish attack on the castell that was preliminarily successful, and the Jews moved in and they created and they, they're the ones who dug out the, the trenches. After that, Abdul Abdul Qadir al Husseini kicked into motion and he said, "This is outrageous." He had great PR. He had he had a, and he went across the Arab world and he rallied thousands and thousands of troops at his disposal and they came to retake the castell now who was sitting in the castell the israelis had limited fire manpower and limited firepower i mentioned that they were not a legal army right they can carry they couldn't carry um munitions or arms legally and um, they had some small group of people trained there was one general in the uh, haganah named Mickey Marcus, Mickey Marcus, who was killed in Telstone at the top of the hill. Remember the monument we walked around on, on, on Shabbos evening? Sort of the monument in friendly fire. He was killed. That was the one highest ranking Israeli. He had, he had World War II experience. Most of the Jews fighting had none. Um, the trained professional military people were called. You mentioned the name earlier. Who were they? In the division of the Haganah, they were the most trained unit. Pamach. The Pamach. But the Pambach were few and precious, and they were needed constantly to fight all the major battles. So they came in to fight the, bat the initial battle of the Castel, but once they won, they left. They couldn't just stay here. They, they were needed for the next battle. So who did they, who did they, uh, who did they replace themselves with? Hashim, Chayal Sadeh, field soldiers. Who are the field soldiers? I don't know, like you and me and the guy who runs the Bacolet down the street, and mom and, and her uncle, her uncle, and you know, like just a bunch of like, ra I talk about Hasidim from Dushinsky. What? Dushinsky, yeah. Hasidim. Right. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Do you know, if you go to the military cemeteries, there's a military cemetery down the hill in Kiryat Anavim, if you go to, if you go to 
Oh, it's really late. Um, if you go to uh, the cemetery, you um, can see a bunch of kids' graves. Kids fought because it was everybody. It was an existential war. The Jews against the Arabs. That's you know, in terms of the fighting, the Arabs outnumbered the Jews. The Jews had the rough zone on their side. They were fighting to survive. The Arabs were not. They were fighting an ideological battle, but they were not fighting an existential battle. You hear the difference? Yeah. So you walk in the if you're outside, you're exposed, you're doomed. You know, it's kind of like, it's not nice to be in war. Avoid war, too bad. Noted. This was this structure was originally the Mukhtar's uh, house. Mukhtar was the was the Arab sheikh was the was the leader of the village that was converted into the headquarters of the army. The story, as it's told, unfolds that the um, it's the evening of oh my dates are getting I have to write, you do have the date there April 9th possibly I think it's April 9th. The evening of April 8th or April 9th? One of those. The sign earlier is April 8th. April 8th. Okay, there we go. April 8th of 1948. Again, the fighting is pretty fierce, and it doesn't look very positive for the Jews. You have a bunch of Cheshim who are in control on top of the mountain, the the Chayel Sadeh, field soldiers, not professionals. Um, And then suddenly, the mountain is surrounded. There's nobody else. It's just Arabs. As far as you can see, from every direction in the, in, on top of the mountain, uh, there are just thousands and thousands of Arabs, people who would run in from Jordan, he- heeding the rally cry, let's take the Castel. Because Castel became symbolic of the war. And they had this great leader, Abdul Qadr Husseini, at, their, at, at, at the head, head front. And Didn't he get killed already? No. The night. No, you're writing the story. Oh, sorry. Uh, that's okay. Uh, if it's a familiar story, yeah, it's one of the it's one of these stories. Anyway, it was on the sign back there. Oh, okay, you read it. Okay, let me read. Look, look at the announcement from the, the WhatsApp group. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so the the, the story is um, as a wild story. This is where uh, you know they claim victory, but you can't make these things up. This is so obviously Minashamayim. They're sitting up top of the mountain. They're waiting for reinforcements. There are Pamachnikim over in Kiryat, Kibbutz Kiryat Anavim who are waiting to move in, but it's nighttime, and the Arabs decide to give it a rest. You don't fight, generally, warfare at night uh, for all kinds of reasons. So they were waiting till the morning so they could charge up the mountain and take back Castel once and for all and make it an Arab stronghold again. The Jews were sitting up here quaking in their boots, expecting the worst. They, in the middle of the night, had sentrymen going around guarding, but these were not exactly the most intelligent of figures. There were two figures who went down too far, the, too far down the mountain, and suddenly a figure was approaching, a solitary figure was approaching, and the two Jews, and I don't know, you, the old Keystone cops, kind of slapstick humor, they went, ah, an Arab, and they like, you know, ran into each other, and then ran away, and ran behind a bush, and they were like, terrified an Arab was coming. The Arab was coming, indeed, not for them, but for a bush. Uh, he was looking for a place to relieve himself. And as he was in the middle of relieving himself, the Jews called out to him. And um, he spoke, he heard the Hebrew, and he spoke in a very accented Hebrew. He said, it's just us boys. 
but they heard the accent and that was enough for them in their terror to fire and then flee. And they didn't even stay to turn around to see whatever became of the man who was trying to relieve himself in the side of the bush. The next morning, indeed, as expected, was, was something of a bloodbath. Uh, the Arabs charged up the mountain, um, but it was very short-lived because um, the, the Jews who were here, by the way, the people tell stories of rolling down the mountain towards Kiryat, uh, towards uh, Kibbutz Kiryat Anavim, uh, whatever they could do to survive. Some, some took, took refuge inside here. But, in, but early on, in the early morning hours, there was a sudden commotion among the Arabs because the Arabs, anticipating a victory, were looking for their courageous war hero of a leader, Abdul Qadr al-Husseini, and he was nowhere in sight. And suddenly, from the bottom of the mountain, a fierce cry went up, a scream. Uh, Abdul Qadr al-Husseini, the Arab version of the events, died. He died, he was killed, a brave war hero, uh, right, as he was charging up, leading the Arabs to the victory in the Castel. Um, we only know later that Uzi Narkis actually found, found the, um, he had found the body, and he found papers on the body identified as Abdul Qadr al-Husseini. He was the guy that they shot by the bush. Uh, the Arabs now were screaming. They caught. They they were they were mixed emotions, rollercoaster emotions. They'd taken the castel. The Jews had fled, uh, but now their great hero they, had they, died. They, they shot a Jew. The Jews shot Abdul Qadr Husseini. He was the one relieving himself by the bush. Who was the one who found the papers? Uzi Narkis. Later, at one point in the uh, in the tumble, he found the papers. Okay. okay. Um, So here you have perspective. There's Harnof. There's Harnof. Right? There's Telstone. Right? See the yeshiva on the top of the hill? You can see very nicely here. Anybody who was on my Telstone tour, we'll see that we'll talk about this later on. In in times of Tanakh, in the biblical times, there were two neighboring hills uh, right next to each other that were separating separated by the border between Yehuda and Binyamin. It's belief and I think it's very persuasive that what we're looking at on the leftern hill if you see the two mountains right in front of us the leftern the left side is the northernmost border of Yehuda everything from there and to the left is Eretz Yehuda Nachlas Yehuda and the right mound where they found that the more intense archaeological ruins from the biblical era including last week's Haftarah tells the story um you ever, you ever heard what I just said last week's then you have you have a few minutes to catch up on your on your haftarah and, and tell me what it was. But last week's haftarah um, told the story in that mountain. Um, that's everything to the right. That's the southernmost mountain in Binyamin. Binyamin and Yehuda is this whole area. This is the border between Yehuda and Binyamin. That was Givat Kiryat Yarim, whereas in Yehuda it was called Kiryat Yarim. Two different places. And in Givat Kiryat Yarim, that's where probably the most famous thing was held there for 20 years. Uh, the the, the the Arun Kodesh, not the Mishkan, it's a good uh, yeah, guess, yeah. not the Mishkan formally. The Mishkan was a different story. The Arun Kodesh, before the devil will come and bring it to the to Ir David and eventually to uh, the Besamikdash when Shlomo builds it. Um, so you're looking at Telstone, Kirat Yarim in that direction. A couple, just to point out, point out some of the landmarks. Uh, this is a uh, secular community called Maos Tzion. This is um, below Telstone is Abu Ghosh. See a spectacular mosque there with four, four minarets of a mosque. They're very, they're very proud of it. Um, you see on the hill, 
you see the hotel of Malik Hamisha. Malik Hamisha is one of the Jewish, uh, one of the Jewish neighborhoods in this area named for five Jews who were murdered by Arabs. I mean, there was so much bloodshed. Another five Jews murdered by Arabs and they named a place for him. Um, then you see the suburban area of Nevisaret Sion, um, just over the hill. I mean, we're looking at what's called the Green Line area where the, in, in the armistice agreements of 49, they drew with a green marker, the Green Line separating the borders of the state of Israel from Jordan. So the far mountain range, we're looking into what was Jordan. What was what what is what is today considered the West Bank by the left wing and the Shomron by the right wing, um, and you're seeing all Arab villages dotting the landscape. That's what it looked like uh, back in '48. Um, pretty much not developed, not developed, not developed, and suddenly you get to the highly developed uh, suburban neighborhood again of Mevaseret, the wa the army watchtower on the, on the distance, on the horizon at about one o'clock. What are we looking at? The Muslim mosque-looking thing surrounded by trees. What is that? Right? Kever Shmuel Anabi, or Nabi Samuel, which is an Arab tradition, not necessarily a Jewish one. Uh, you can go down and you, you'd see remote, it's not visible from here. Um, on the distance, you'd see Givat Shaul from the times of the Tanakh, from Shaul HaMelech, and then um, the outskirts of Yerushalayim. And, uh, and then as you turn around, we're looking at the modern city of Yerushalayim, the big mountain right in front of us is Harmanuchos, where a lot of Gedolei Torah were buried from the 1950s till today. Uh, they're buried there. Very exciting place to go. Who is with me at um, at Rebetzin Raskin's Leviah? Any, any of you uh, join me at the, at the Leviah at the very end? I just I said get over here, and I grabbed whoever I could to give a, a ten-minute quick makeshift tour of Harmanuchos. Um, yeah, so that's that's um, Harmanuchos in front of us. Harnof on uh, well the modern city. Right, the the, uh, the monstrosity called Kinor David that, that's at the entrance of Yerushalayim, you can see uh, David's harp. Um, yeah, you see, can make that out. Structure straight ahead. Yeah, um, Harnof is this nice area on the top of Harnof is old Deir Yassin. And then moving around, let's complete the what we see from here. You, have, you could really, you really do have control of the high ground in this area. You're looking now at the area of um, this is already Kiryat Menachem, Kiryat Yovel, Jewish neighborhoods in the northwest of the city. Hadassah Ein Karam right in front of us. See, in, in, in the valley below, major complex of buildings, uh, including a helicopter landing pad at the very top of the of the complex of Hadassah Ein Karam in the valley, straight ahead of us. Yeah, um, they built that after when um, Ariel Sharon, who was then prime minister in 2005, had a um, had a weird thing. It wasn't quite a stroke. It was something similar. Um, they couldn't get him to the hospital fast enough to save his life. And from that point, they built a helicopter landing so that they could bring people in, uh, including who did they, who landed there? Um, uh, Mrs. D, who just was murdered by a terrorist on Arab Shabbos uh, from Efrat, the uh, the mother of the two daughters who was murdered in the Jordan Valley. So they flew her in a helicopter, but it didn't help. Uh, she, she passed away a few days after, after struggling for her life. South of there already, you can see the farthest region you can see already is Gush Etzion, where we went zip lining and, uh, and, and jeep riding and uh, other things in the, in the uh, and, and Bat Ayin, that whole region. Um, and uh, you can see building, all very, this is all high, high end, uh, very, very uh, um, expensive homes. What neighborhood is that? This is Maus Sion, which is all part of the municipality of Mevaseret Sion. Mevetzeret Sion is a term that comes from the Tanakh, comes from Yeshaya. And then um, further down is the coastal plain. Right, so you, on, on the top of the, on the Capa Castell, you have, there's no doubt in anybody's mind, you've got the high ground. Let's finish the story. Um, so now, what's happening? The Arabs have retaken the Castell. 
they're now in charge again. After, after it went back and forth between Arab hand, Jewish hand, now back in Arab hand. The Jews ran down the valley. Those who survived ran down and fled to Kiryat Panavim, which was a small Jewish kibbutz down, down on that side. The Arabs are up here and they're left um, elated and destroyed. Elated that they, that they were victorious, destroyed because their, their, their courageous leader, Abdul Qadir Hussein himself, fell in battle. Decided to give him a war's here a war hero's burial, and where did they choose? Of course, a very appropriate site to have a burial. They buried him in um, in uh, uh, um, my memory my, my, my memory's uh, escaping me today. Uh, the term is in Arabic. We'll call it Harabais in Hebrew. Um, the Temple Mount. There's a, there are a few graves on, in right near the Dome of the Rock, including Abdul Qadr al-Husseini. They felt he was worthy of being buried near the Holy Shrine uh, for them, which was not a major shrine, but a holy shrine. So the, um, the, the, the cry went out, everybody should go to give honor to the great fallen war hero, Abdul Qadr al-Husseini, and indeed it was heeded. Here was an example of Arab solidarity at its finest. Uh, everybody went to the funeral. Everybody. Everybody. So that when, sitting down, the Palmachniks who are now licking their wounds in Kiryat Anavim in the valley below, get the order from Tel Aviv that's mystifying, that's suicidal, go and retake the castell. They say, are you nuts? We barely got away with our lives. We're not going to go back to that place. They said, go right now. Do not ask questions. And they were following orders. So they came up and barely a bullet flew. They came up, the place had all emptied out after the Arabs had taken it. They'd left to go give honor to Abu Hussein. Uh, the Jews come in, they move in with reinforcements, they retake the castell, which sits in Jewish hands till today. So, however you want to frame that story, obviously I'll see it as a story of Abashkacha Pratis, as Shem's providence. Uh, it's just too bizarre, it's too comical, it's too slapstick to be true, only here it is. And the Israelis certainly celebrate it as a show of great bravado and heroism on their part. There was heroism, but that's not what won the war. Uh, and, um, and so they took the castell. In the end, anyway, it was a, it was a semi-victory. They managed to secure some... They, they managed to take some primacy over the road below so that they could somehow, you know, be, be, be relatively secure and get supplies through Shlime. But you've noticed if you come up, you've seen the, I think I pointed them out on the tour before, you've seen the old um, trucks and cars, the military cars that were destroyed and then left as monuments. They're on the side of the road as you go down. Next time you're, you're traveling the Israeli, this road, um, it's pretty much on the other side after Telsil, so you're not going to see it today. But you'll see going down to the coast, you'll see remnants of these caravans that were um, beset by massacres by, by Arabs coming down. That stopped happening with the taking of the castell. Jews went into many of the communities. That's Shorish in the distance. That was once Saris, the Jews Shorish. They go over Beit Masir, which is over there. Uh, they made it to Beit Meir, where OJ is, or Yishlaim is located in Beit Meir. And um, the Jerusalem corridor became uh, mostly Jewish, almost entirely Jewish, with a few remnants. There's still Abu Ghosh. Why did Abu Ghosh endure? They were perceived, they were mostly the good guys. They allowed the Jews a safe refuge. In this otherwise hostile area, the Jews knew when they got to Abu Ghosh, they were more or less in a, in a relatively peaceful area. I say relatively, it wasn't uniform, but a mostly peaceful area. Still, um, with the fighting 
and especially in the autumn when the, when the Jews were really having the upper hand, um, they actually evacuated all of the all of the Arab villages, including Abu Ghosh, and the residents were only let back um, sometime after the war had finished and the uh, the Israeli state began. The uh, yeah. So um, so that that is a story, and then Yerushalayim was preserved at least part of it. We we lost the old city, uh, but you got Western Yerushalayim, and uh, because psychologically people felt that that was so cre- that so critical, um, so then the uh, the Israelis declared victory and uh, declared a state. Um, all of this you can hear how it plays very much into the narrative, and there's so much more we can say. Questions, thoughts, narky comments. You have a sense of the topography here. It's wild that they built such an expansive highway today. You look, you look between these mountain ridges. It doesn't look like a place you could build a nice road. Yeah. I've hiked up and down everywhere here. <laughs> I don't think there's a mountain here I haven't been in. I might be sitting on it. Yeah, right, 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 right. Well, here's Beit Machsir we just talked about. Now today, Beit Meir, and you can see here. Um, here's the Castell. Castell, quite prominent. Right. Uh, Where are we right now? We're right here. Oh. You are here. Yeah. Um, this is um, that mountain over there. It's called Har Adar. Har Adar, which was interestingly Judaified. Uh, it was um, actually the British radar tower. The radar tower in, in Israelis' mouths became Har Adar, named for the month. Yeah, they mangled, mangled the word. Yeah, uh, but it was a radar. It was another high spot, um, and it sits right on the boundary. They actually lost the battle in Haradar in '48. They would win it in '67, uh, and then this whole area they kind of they kind of fudged the, the you know they, they, they blurred the green line uh, somewhat, and it's become much more Jewish. But this is uh, one of the things this illustrates is <laughs> we had a hard time trying to get out today and figure out what we're going to do. This is theoretically Yehuda's prize. So he's being very gracious and generous and sharing with everybody else. Uh, remember on the raffle? And you, you thought you yeah. lost, right? Uh, <laughs> right, so in the raffle on Hanukkah, they, they, uh, Derek has not always known for following, uh, making good on their promises, but he did win, win a tour fair and square. And we were, we were trying, we had lots of other tours in mind um, that we were going to do, and then the word went out in our Sameach that Tulim um, were basically off off the map because of the uh, security situation right now, which is not great. It's Ramadan and the Arabs are fighting and, the, and there's, there's more tourist, ter- uh, terrorist attacks. So I came, up, what, uh, came up with what I felt was about as neutral and safe of an idea for a, a nice day out as I could. We, I was gonna do something else, maybe we'll do it another time, but, um, but this, is, this is all alternative. The point I was gonna make though is that you really get a sense here, even today, how it's like the Eretz Israel today is like this. Jew, Arab, Jew, Arab, Jew, Arab, we're just like, there's no place where you remove from it. Even Abu Ghosh, which is known to be relatively moderate, there are problems. There have been, there have been, there have been problems, not entirely peaceful. Right, look, Abu Ghosh, what's the difference between Abu Ghosh and Tel You can't even make it out. One run of houses, and it's gonna be even more so, they're building up the entire area, it's valuable real estate. Uh, wherever you, you wanna make a lot of money, try to invest in, in uh, real estate for Haredi. Because we, um, you know why? We have lots of babies, and the babies grow up, and then they get married, and they need houses. So there's always need. There's always demand. So architects are good, right? Remember, yeah. Can, can you point out the Jerusalem? Sure. Is it visible from here? Yeah, yes, it is. It is. Um, we're looking at Harnof. That mountain is Harnof. Um, that is, uh, it's an Orthodox, whatever that even means anymore, uh, Orthodox, beautiful community. Uh, that's the whole hill. Um, that's just, you know, here's Harmanuchos, and here's the whole hill. Very, very much, um, they call it a concrete jungle, Harnof, right? It's a lot, a lot of concrete buildings, but okay. At the very top of Harnof, you see um, a greenery. You see a, a kind of a forested area. 
Um, it actually is the old village of Dir Yassin. And you can actually, beneath the trees, you can vaguely make out old Arab houses from 48, uh, in, which, um, in which that was where Dir Yassin, whatever happened there, uh, took place in April of, of 1948. Um, if you look, let's say, by Hadassah and Karam, in Karam, and then you look to the left, you see a big golden dome of a Russian Orthodox church, and then the, 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 um, the village down below. The village down below is a wealthy Arab village in, 40, in 40, up till 47, 48. Uh, beautiful, anybody been in, in Karam before? Beautiful, grand old Arab architecture. And um, this was more of a typical story. The Arabs there fled en masse. Uh, they heard of the fighting, they were wealthy, they didn't want to take place in the, in, in the, in the bloodshed, and they left, mostly in the case of, um, of Ain Karim, most of the Arabs would go to Lebanon. And um, the Jews, when the army came in expecting, expecting uh, uh, resistance, not only did they not find resistance, but they found, they went into one house, and there was still, the soup was still hot on the table. The family left in the middle of dinner and are waiting to come back till today, the descendants are. Um, this area, the Arabs that fled in this from this area generally went to the Gaza area, which was not as miserable as it is today. Um, most of them were, for, if they couldn't afford otherwise, they were settled in a refugee camp called Jabalia, which is named the Mountain, the Mountain People, because they're living in the mountains. These are the Judean hills. We sing at weddings, right? it'll be heard in the, in the mountains of, of Yehuda. This is all the Judean, uh, the Judean hillside. That's Binyamin, further north, if you're oriented. Yeah. You want to wander around a little bit? Great. Yerushalayim, Harim, What is it? Ein Chemed is right, is, is, um, no, Ein Chemed is right down, down the hill from here. Ein Chemed is an old crusader fortress, another national park you have to pay to get into. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But surely speak of really. I mean, nice, but old, <laughs> old crusader ruins, but they were bad guys. Yeah. Who needs to celebrate them? And I can assure you that the other guys were going much more into the nitty-gritty of Hupa. It was so boring. Like, you just tell these, like, I, I could see why, I guess, if you're into it, you know, but let's say, anybody not into hockey here, yeah. for example, you ever hear hockey fans go on? Oh, yeah. It's just deadly. It's just deadly. That's like it's really talking about the battle sites. Yeah. So I just, I, I kind of spared a lot of that detail and just gave you the Yad Hashem. Let's wander. Lime. Um, really, that one, much more than 443. If you go down the 443, uh, goes to Kiryat Safe, and that and that reach kind of the next mountain over. That's where, let's say, in Baishani, that period, that's where people came from. This also, at one point during the War of Independence, was inaccessible because of all the fighting we're having. So the Jews built an alternate route called the Burma Road. They named it the Burma Road that went in that area. And um, just to illustrate the inspiration, the Burma Road was built. You can read all of this. If this is interesting to you, there's a not bad, uh, not bad version of it in a book called O Jerusalem that was put together. Also, an attempt at even-handed journalism, but it tells it very dramatically uh, about all, the, all this this chapter in history. And um, anyway, the Berman Road was built by a bunch of old timers because nobody else was available to build a road. Everybody else was fighting in the battle, fighting in the forefront at the battle at the battle sites. So the old and they tell stories of people who were, who were clearing the paths. So there'd be another alternate artery of traffic to get Jerusalem. Some of them died of heart attacks because of the uh, overly rigorous work work that was in, that was demanded. Why was it called the Burma Road? Uh, because no, it, Burma was at the time now it doesn't exist, but it was it was a country that also had its own alternate ro road built. So this is the, the official name for the alternate road to Jerusalem. Words there um, were great calls of 
victory and we're the best and nobody can beat us. By the way, that action was arguably the last proud event of the Israeli army. They've done nothing since Entebbe? then that they can really be that in Tebi. What since 1976 have the, has the Israeli army engaged in that they can call a proud moment? They had the Six Day War, they had the War of Independence, and Tebi. Mm, it's been pretty embarrassing. Uh, I look up if you're Wikipedia me. Go look up the withdrawal from Lebanon in the year 2000. They withdrew under fire with their tail between their legs, quite quite humiliated. Uh, they have never been proud. And Rafshak's response to the great savior of most of the passengers uh, and most of the soldiers to, Ente to Entebbe was it was it was a um, it was wrong. They shouldn't have done it. Had they asked Dastor, if they asked Shali, which is what Yid does, we ask our post king what we're supposed to do. The answer I would have given, I would have posken that it's usher. You're not allowed to have such a daring, bold operation that risks the lives of these soldiers. You're not allowed one blood, one Jewish life does not is you can't you can't forfeit for another Jewish life. It was daredevil. The fact that a, this is his point, the fact that a Kaddish Baruch Hu comes in with his own chesed, even when we're not worthy, even when we're not deserving, that's his business. We can't read into it that that's his bracha. And he says, you're doing the good thing. Quite the contrary. All we have today, we only have and the mitzvahs that we know we're supposed to keep. That's the only way we know that we're doing Ratzon Hashem. If we're going against that, it's bad. If we're, going in, if, we're, if we're doing it, then it's good. That's all we have today. You're saying that in hindsight, we can know that it was Ratzon Hashem, but that doesn't make it a good thing. Right. It doesn't mean that we were correct in our behavior. And all we have today is doing the right thing. All, all the Yid has today is, what does the halacha require of me? What is Hashem's ratzon? That I, how do I live my life? What is the decent decision that I make? And they were wrong. And no victory can prove that they were right.